Hey, thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you're crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. He's become one of my favorite characters in scripture, and maybe because I want to feel a connection with him. Uh, the last couple of times I went to Israel, I've had church groups, and I always hate it. I've had church groups want to take a picture at the Jordan, like not the bridge, but like other churches there, want to take a picture with me by the Jordan River because they say I resemble Jesus. In fact, uh, two times ago when I went to Israel, uh, I was baptizing our church in the, in the Jordan River, and then two other churches came out and wanted to get baptized too because he said, well, you look like Jesus, and so we wanted to get, wanted to get baptized. And I actually, I, I hate it. Jesus did not look like me. Jesus was way cooler, he was more fit, he had brown skin, probably short hair, he was funny. Uh, Jesus was way cooler. Actually, you wanna know why medieval paintings always have Jesus with long hair? It's actually kind of funny. Um, it's, the reason is, is that artists are not always book smart. Artists got confused. So they read the Bible and, and it said, Jesus the Nazarene which means Jesus from Nazareth. But they thought, oh, like Nazarene, like Nazarite, like Samson, you know, you know the story of Samson? You know, Samson couldn't cut his, cut his hair. He took that Nazarite vow. So he said, well, Samson could cut his hair. So Jesus probably had long hair too. So let's, let's paint Jesus with long hair. That's where a lot of our whole depictions of Jesus with long hair actually comes from that confusion when it comes to the, to the, the word Nazarene. And so I had, I had a friend in, last time I was in Israel, I had a friend, I was telling my friends, like, man, I just hate it when people ask for, for a picture because they, they say I look like Jesus. And my buddy had said to me, he said, yeah, you remind me more of John the Baptist. <laughs> I can get on board with that. My friend's like, you know, he had messy hair. He wore very weird stuff, always camping out, ate crazy things. You know, the, the homeschooled, organic, weird cousin of Jesus Christ. This medieval painting, I think the artist probably nailed it. He's a wild man. He is someone who Jesus himself said, there's no one greater than John. He was a major influence in the life of Jesus Christ. He was a major influence in the life of a few of Jesus' own disciples. He is somebody that we should get to know. He sparked a revolution ushering Jesus in. Heck, that's something we want to do. We'll learn from the best. He's a man who's been all but forgotten, yet when you study his life, you're blown away by what he has to offer. And so for the next four weeks, we're following, we're following this guy around. We're following a wild, a wild man around, tracking the wild man. He's got a wild story with wild lessons at every turn, wild from birth to death. And we'll see, it's a wild that God is calling you into. I hope you're up for it. It's gonna be wild. Luke chapter one is where we're at. Luke chapter one, I encourage you to grab a Bible. It's page 855 in the Bibles in the chairs. This is kind of what we do as a church is we take a book of the Bible or we'll take a character and we'll follow, we'll, we'll follow that book or we'll follow that character throughout scripture. And John's story starts in Luke chapter one. We also have um, notes as well. Got a few notes for today. And I will say, you know, we're coming out of the seven deadly sin series, which became one of my favorite series that we've done. It was a lot, of, a lot of fun, a lot of work, but a lot of fun. And what's very different, though, about this series you're going to see is that in our Seven Deadly Sins series, we were able to really hone in on one topic and just kind of hit that over and over and over all you know, for, the, for the 40 minutes that, that we were together in, in Scripture. In John the Baptist's life, 
you're gonna see this sermon is just kind of wild. It's, it's, it, it's a lot of different topics that we gotta bring together, but it's, it's how scripture paints John. He was just a wild guy, so we're gonna have a little bit of, of a wild different topics today, but it'll be fun. Let me pray, and we'll just jump right into this. God, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this man that, that we're about to, to follow to Easter. And Father, we, we want to uh, we not, not just know John better, God, we want to also feel his story. As Jesus said, there's no one greater than John. And we want to get to why. And so, Father, may you convict today. You will convict. I ask that we're open to that. We're going to hit some, as you know, as we've been praying to you about, we're going to hit some politically incorrect stuff today. And it might be a wrestle for some of us in this room. But, Father, may we just be completely open to what you have for us, completely surrendered and submitted to what you say in your word. And so, God, we invite the Holy Spirit to illuminate this text to us and to convict us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we enter into Luke chapter 1, we find ourselves just outside of Jerusalem, Israel. It's roughly 5 B.C. Little settlements pepper the barren hills surrounding Jerusalem, it's a quaint yet breathtaking area to live. The, the green mountainous landscaping, the rolling hills of vineyards and olive groves, a periodic wine press with surrounding gardens and little limestone neighborhoods kind of stacked on top of each other like stairs going up the terrain. And just up one of the hills sits the pride of Israel, Jerusalem, the holy temple, what they call the center of the world. But tucked away in one of the outlying valleys, it's an average home. It's a small block house, exactly like the one above it and, and below it. And inside the house, an older lady dices vegetables from yesterday's harvest. She's known to be one of the sweetest ladies around. She keeps out of all the small town drama. She's a regular worshiper in the temple where her husband often volunteers. Up until this point, she's lived a, a quiet life, a very simple life. And today, she's just preparing food for her husband. Periodically, she takes a trek up the hill through Jerusalem's gates to worship at God's temple and, and visit her husband and see him in action. There's not a trace of bitterness in her, but there is this deep pain that she carries. She's wanted nothing more than to fill her home, her little house, with the laughter of children. But after decades and decades and decades of trying and decades of longing and decades of heartbreak and tears, She's come to accept that that door is now closed. But instead of dwelling on her barren womb, she just focuses on the blessing of her husband. Her barrenness gives him legal grounds to divorce her. She's seen it happen, but Zechariah doesn't take that out. He just stays. The kids are no kids. He's, he's there, and he loves her. But little does she know as she dices these vegetables, her husband will return tonight with news that will change everything. We pick it up in verse five. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he and his wife, he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, now just keep in mind as we're reading this that the temple had many, many, many priests. There was a lot to take care of in, in Jerusalem's temple. 
The temple plaza was constantly buzzing with pilgrims day and night. There was the holy place, a large burning menorah to, to keep fed. There were altars for sacrifice, so a lot of sacrificing taking place. There was a treasury for giving that needed to be guarded. There was a men's court to staff. There was a women's court to staff. Not to mention all of the exits and the entrances to, to monitor. It was crowd control. There was a lot of gold to polish up there. And so what the temple did was, was very smart. They created this extremely large roster of priests, thousands and thousands of volunteers divided up into 24 divisions. Zechariah was in the eighth division, and he would serve just a few weeks a year. He's a part-timer, if you will. He married this girl named Elizabeth. She grew up with her dad working at the temple full-time. She's one of the daughters of Aaron, so he would have been a full-time priest. And she ended up marrying a boy who worked there part-time. Elizabeth is about a, a, as much of a church girl as you can get, and she is a sweetheart. Like in verse six, if you look at verse six, it says she was righteous, meaning she just did what was right. She was unable to have babies. That hurt her, but that didn't make her bitter. That didn't make her envious. She's just this sweet, sweet lady. Jump to verse, verse eight. It says, now while he was serving, Zechariah, as he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So here's what's going on. Each time Zechariah would show up to volunteer, he throws some dice or draws, like, draws lots to, to see who would get the most honored job. The incense ceremony. Everybody wanted this job. Because... If you, get, if you win, you get to go into the holy place. Few have ever been into the holy place. It's a position that you would tell your mama about. Your family would brag, oh, my brother went into the holy place. He, he won the lot ceremony. It was talked about at your funeral. A priest could only do an incense ceremony once in their lifetime. And so for decades, Zechariah would show up to do his job. He'd play the game and, and loser. After loser, after loser, after loser. He just never picked to do it. He's like some of us in gym class, just never picked. But his heart nearly bound out of his chest when he finally won. Shocked. Like, this is the moment. You imagine this. He walks into the holy place. To walk inside, it's just surreal. It's where God resides. His heart races as he walks in with a few other priests, but at one point the others would stop. And Zechariah would continue by himself as his heart pounds harder and harder. And outside, a, a growing crowd gathers waiting for the incense smoke to arise. And right at the right moment when they see the incense smoke rise, as Zechariah offers the sacrifice, people would cheer. This is something that he has dreamt of doing and never thought he'd get to do it. Yeah, what happens next is not part of his dream because look at, look at verse 11. Verse 11. It says, and there appeared, so he's in there alone, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing, out, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, this is a pain that he has felt that he has carried for decades. It's been hard not to allow that ache to, to define his life, to live in this bitter sorrow, to be this negative Nancy, envious of their friends who had kids and now have grandkids. And this is just my opinion, but after verse 13, 
I'm guessing the rest of the message was completely muffled by Zechariah's shock. He's standing there in the holies. I mean, already he's in shock just being in here. And now the angel, an angel appears. Like, that's crazy enough. And now he's learns, I'm going to be a dad. And the angel goes on to tell Zechariah. But again, I think it's muffled. He's like, well, this child's going to be great. He's going to turn many to God. He's going to prepare the way. I think in this moment, Zechariah's just trying to catch up mentally. Because look what he says in verse 18. Skip to verse 18. So then Zechariah said to the angel, well, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. This is such a funny response to me. How shall I know that my wife is pregnant? We already went through the hot flash phase. She's not a spring chicken. You know, also, uh, I'm an old man. And you can know the angel's sitting there thinking like, really? Oh, I couldn't tell. You know, white hair, cane, came hobbling in here. Huh? Must have shown up to the wrong priest in the Holy of Holies. Like, how shall I know? Well, Zechariah, here's how you'll know. She'll be pregnant. And this is how it works. She gets a little emotional. And you can't make it any better because you did that to her. And her belly will start to grow. And she's going to crave weird things. And her feet won't fit in the sandals anymore. I'm like, what do you mean? How shall I know? She's going to have a baby inside of her. See, this question here in verse 18, this is more than just curiosity. This is doubt. Zechariah, what he's doing here is he's asking for a sign. He doesn't believe it. And he doesn't, and part of us can't blame him, but he doesn't want to get his hopes up. So in the Holy of Holies, to the angel, he says, I refuse to believe this. And what happens next is the angel shuts his mouth. All right, you want to doubt? You want to drag your feet with this? You want to raise a bunch of questions? You want to stand here and start poking holes in this amazing moment in your life? Your mouth is shut. I was going to do this with you. Now I'm going to bench you and you're just going to have to watch. So there stands Zechariah in the Holy of Holies. So much to tell his family. Hey, I got to actually do the coveted job. I was in the Holy of Holies. Oh, and I saw an angel. And babe, no, get, no dinner guests tonight. Like, we're making a baby. It's going to happen. Like, he's got so much to say, but he can't say it. He's got to go home, be quiet, and wait. To add to that, starting the baby-making process without talking is going to be harder than it normally is. This just sucks for, for Zechariah. I mean, my goodness, John's not even born yet, and his wild story is already giving us point number one. Sometimes you must quietly wait. Sometimes you just must quietly wait. Sometimes you don't need to say anything. You just need to be quiet and wait. And maybe you're at that season in your life right now, feeling like you gotta control everything. And God's saying, oh, shh. No, I don't know what's gonna happen. Freaking out, God. God, where are you? I can't control this. This is my universal sign with my girls. I get made fun of at home for it all the time. I did this today, just like, like, take a deep breath, close the mouth, wait. It was like the other day, I, had my, I was loading my girls up in, in the truck, and they had their backpacks, and they had their lunches, and, and their like, project crafts. And my youngest, she's five, she's very capable, like super capable, but she's like me. If she can't do something, she gets very frustrated. Like Times when I get most mad is when I feel inadequate and, and incapable of doing something, and she's very much the same way. And so we're walking to the truck, She's trying to carry all of her stuff and she drops a few things. Ever done this? And you like bend over. She bends over to get a few things and then a few more things drops. And then just like a freak out moment. She's like, Whoosh! you know, she's crying. She's ticked off, you know, screaming. And so I get down next to her and, and, and I say to her, I was like, shh, just shh, close your mouth. 
my goodness, chill girl, and watch. And I picked up a couple of her things and she calmed down and on we went. It's like, you know, five-year-old problems, right? I don't think we outgrow that. I think some of us are living like a five-year-old carrying too much. How many of us spent our weeks? How many of us spent our dinners talking this way? How many of us sat in meetings thinking, I'm so stressed, I got work, and I got school, and I got that commitment, and the news just said, and I gotta protect my kid and my health and my family drama, I gotta gotta find someone? And I wonder how often God says to us, can you just close your mouth, calm down, wait. Yeah, but what if he doesn't, you know, what if I don't get to him, what if my kids, and what, and what if the bills, and what if the office, like, stop. Be quiet and wait. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. Some of us have never done that. We know he's God, but we haven't felt that in the stillness because we've never been still. Some of us don't really embrace the greatness of God because we can't do this first part. Just sit and be still. You're trying to control that. You're trying to monitor that. You're venting over here. You're frustrated over there. And you're never actually finding that stillness to be reminded, okay, no, no, no. All right, he's God. I see. I see it. He's God. He's going to win. Our lives might get rocky at times, difficult at times, but he is God. And God doesn't freak out in heaven. We might pace our house in anxiety, pace our offices in anxiety, but God never does. And it's only in stillness when we catch that peace. The way I think about it is, uh, many of you have been praying for my daughter, and we feel so blessed. My, my daughter was born with a cataract, and we heard that she might be going blind in her right eye, and uh, just kind of a painful process. But we received some good news, and... and and still in the process of tests, but it really looked like we were, she was going to lose her sight in her right eye, and then the eye would likely go, uh, you know, wander, lazy, some people call it. And so a month ago, you know, we're kind of dealing with this, and I was a wreck. I just felt so out of control. I could do nothing. And I'm a pretty chill guy, but I was really struggling, hiding tears, and just thinking like, man, as a dad, I would love nothing more than just give her my eye, right? I'll wear the patch. I don't care, but like, not my little girl. And we had this team of doctors that's fi- figuring this out, and they're a great team, but I was thinking like, oh, well, I'll get like a second opinion. You know, I'll get a second team of doctors. Like, I'll switch insurance. I'll take her to the you know, mail clinic if I have to. I, I was just not myself. You know, I was asking, and I was asking myself, like, what's wrong with me? Why am I freaking out so much? It's because I didn't like feeling not in control. Like, I gotta fix this. I gotta find something better. This is my, this is my girl. I got, Daddy's gotta handle this. And what stopped me in my tracks was somebody here at church, a friend of mine here at church, just said to me, he said, Junior, have you fasted yet? Like, no. See, fasting is the spiritual discipline that reminds you of your dependence and it turns down the volume on life and it makes you still and hungry. And it's in that stillness that we're reminded, no, he is God. A friend asked me that, I was like, it didn't even cross my mind. Why? Because I was too busy doubting and controlling and freaking out. And I don't think I'm the only one, am I? Like, heaven forbid it takes God to put you on your back to remind you, just shut your mouth and look at me and see how great I am. You, you have no control. I have the control. See, the peace you really want, it starts in the stillness. And maybe what happened to Zechariah here needs to happen to us. Just that whole, shh, close your mouth, take a deep breath, be quiet, wait, 
and watch. And doing that voluntarily is far less painful than God doing it for us. At some point, we have to go, I can't control this. I can't write the ending to this. And so I'm just gonna let the author write the ending and I'm gonna be still and be reminded just how great and mighty and powerful he is. We continue on in verse 23. It says, when the time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden. So you think about this, just kind of put yourself in her shoes at this point. She goes back to her house. She decides to take God's advice or what he did to her husband. It's like, okay, I'm gonna be quiet. So no parties, no posting or anything like that. No big announcement, no gender reveals. She just goes home, knits, you know, rubs her belly and maybe rejoices that her husband's on mute now. And after five months, after five months here, Elizabeth's much, much, much younger cousin shows up on her doorstep. Can you guess who it is? It's Mary. It says, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, Mary's standing outside. Look at this. The baby leaped in her womb. Wild in the womb. This is such a significant verse in scripture in so many ways, and it should really cause us to think. The first person to see and rejoice in the specialness of God in flesh was a preborn child. Like the, the word for baby in the original Greek here is brephos. It's a word that doesn't mean preborn child. It just means baby. Now, of course, for a baby to leap in the womb, it must be preborn. But scripture's usage of wording here is very interesting. It doesn't say a clump of cells leapt. It doesn't say a potential baby leapt. The wording means this baby in her womb is as much of a baby as a baby outside the womb. So I just want to be clear here for a second. I'm not forcing this into get on some soapbox in order to like bend the Bible to back up a political conviction that I have. I do not, and I will not push political agendas from the pulpit. I realize this is not my pulpit. It's just not mine. It's God's, and God is far above politics. He's not an elephant or a donkey. He's a lion. But you will not find me pushing political agendas from up here. And there's been pressure on both sides for the bridge to become very you know, politically active one way or the other, and we're just not going to. We're about victory of Jesus Christ, not the victory of some corrupt political party. But with that, we must teach scripture. And this might invite emails and, and lose some people, but to be above the fray of the political messes, we must be about God's word, and God's word is very clear. This is, the, this is what John's story is teaching us, and that is life begins before birth. It begins before birth. This is a conviction that the people of God have held for thousands of years, and it's a conviction that ancient believers were severely, severely persecuted over. In fact, those in our, those in our like, ancestors, when you consider the church family, our ancestors lost their lives over their conviction of this. The Roman Empire practiced exposure. The act of exposure was if a baby was born especially with a disability or a disfigurement or it was just simply unwanted, you had the right to take the baby out to the wilderness and just leave it and you would expose it. You let mother nature take its course. And it was the Christians who went out and brought them home and raised them as their own. It's Christians who did that and they were severely persecuted for that. They would save the babies. That's actually why I have my shirt on right now. Save, save the babies because that was the conviction of the early church. This is how orphanages were established Early Christians began saving the babies and their families were growing so much like we can't fit all these kids in our homes anymore. And so they started building orphanages. It was this conviction that our ancestors held on to tightly because God's word is clear. Life is precious. Babies are vulnerable and we must step in. 
And I want to, again, I want to be clear too, this is not a guilt trip for those who've had abortions. I have dear friends, dear, dear friends who've had abortions, friends that I cherish very much, and they come to, they come to the bridge, and my heart breaks for them. They want to talk about this. They would be the first to tell you that they were lied to. What happened to them was far more than just a removal of some cells. It did something to them. It ended a life, and it broke their heart, is what they would say. So this is not a stance against women. I am for women pre-born women, but also women who feel like they have no option and they're fed lies only to experience intense rates of depression following the procedure. The statistics of post-abortion mental health is tragic. It is so sad, but it's hidden because it doesn't push an agenda that people want to push. John was aware here. Babies are aware. They suck their thumbs at eight weeks. They respond to sound. They recoil from pain. There's horrible videos of of abortions where the baby does all it can to escape the tool that is taking its precious life. It was a pre-born baby that was the first to recognize God in flesh who was also pre-born. It's an integral part of John's story and we just can't skip it. Continue on. Verse 57. It says, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. Verse 58, and her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. I just, I love to picture this. Like to to be there would be amazing. I've I've been praying for some dear friends who attend here. They've been wanting to conceive for years. And a few few months ago, they took me aside in the lobby to tell me like, hey, she's pregnant. It was just such a fun moment, like just pure joy and tears, like years of praying for this baby. And so you could just imagine this scene. This has been decades Neighbors are just spilling into their house for a shower and relatives are crashing in to celebrate. And I love verse 58. If you look at verse 58, this is worth underlining. The focus wasn't the baby. You see that? The focus wasn't the baby. It wasn't even the mom. It was God's blessing. Now look what God has given us. This should be the focal point of every celebration of ours. Every raise, every promotion, every birthday, every Sabbath, every anniversary, every meal. It's, hey, look what God has done. Look at his blessing. And it makes for far deeper celebrations. It continues on in verse 59. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would, call, they would have called his name Zechariah after his father. So there's a circumcision celebration uh, it's called a Brit or in Yiddish a bris. And it might be hard for us to understand this today. Like, okay, we're celebrating a circumcision? Like the poor baby boy, what's going on here? But it, w- it was, and it is very meaningful, a meaningful celebration of new life. It's like this no- another generation into the covenant of Abraham long, long ago. It's very, very special. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, they did this with John. And it's at this celebration that the son would formally receive his name. And everyone assumes, well, it's going to be Zechariah Jr. Zechariah's been waiting for a child for decades. Everybody, you know, names the firstborn after themselves. So it's going to be Zechariah Jr. It's just customary. Verse 60, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, well, none of your relatives are called by this name. And look at this. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be called. Verse 62 is hilarious. Even stuffy commentators point out the comedy here. Do you see it? Verse 62, they made signs to Zechariah. Why are they making signs? He can hear. He just can't talk. <laughs> it's like in middle school. I, I had a friend who was blind. And when, when people would talk to her, a lot of times they would talk really loud to her. And she would say, I'm blind. I'm not deaf. I can hear you just fine. 
So I just imagine the scene, you know, they're there playing charades, like, what do you want to name your baby? And the old man's like, well, you guys are a bunch of idiots. Verse 63, and he asked for a writing tablet. A writing tablet, this is kind of cool. I just discovered this. Uh, this tablet would have been a board covered in wax. In fact, here's a depiction of this. It would have looked like this. There's wax that you could kind of engrave, and then you would heat it up and, and then erase it. It was like an ancient Etch-a-Sketch, which I just kind of think is fun. So he asked for one of these, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Very interesting here. Now, we have to get into Zechariah's sandals a bit to to more understand what's going on here. Zechariah, for decades, wanted nothing more than to have a son, a son to carry on the name, a son to carry on the legacy. This was huge during this culture, far bigger during this time. Zechariah wants to name him Zechariah Jr. There's peer pressure for that. There's social pressure for that. His own heart is saying Zechariah Jr. But instead of caving to the pressure, instead of doing what Zechariah felt like doing, Zechariah obeyed. No, no, it's John. And that's that very act of obedience that untied his tongue. And it gives us our final point. Obedience leads to freedom. Obedience leads to freedom. We live in a culture that operates under the belief that true freedom is doing what you feel. That's true freedom. If you can do you, you're totally free. True freedom is sleeping with who I want to sleep with, buying what I want to buy, doing what I want to do, going where I want to go, dealing with consequences the way I want to deal with consequences. That's freedom. And it's that belief that has really fueled our society and led to one of the most, if not the most, depressed society in history. Pythagoras said, none can be free who is a slave to himself. It's the worst kind of slavery. Now I'm just a slave to my own desires and I'm a slave to my own feelings. I can't even escape myself. And as a society, we're feeling that. Freedom isn't doing you. The fact of the matter is, like Zechariah, some of us are just one act of obedience away from the freedom that we crave. Many live one act of obedience away from the freedom that we crave. And I wonder if this is you. Somewhere you've been bucking God. It might be a relationship. It might be this refusal to submit to who God has asked you to submit to, a boss, a spouse, a leader. It might be something that you keep hidden. It's an apology that you withhold. See, far too many of us are one act away from living this life that we've been wanting to live in complete freedom Feeling what Zechariah felt here. Oh yeah, our tongue might not be tied, but our attitude is, our mental health is, our heart is, our marriage is, our relationship is, our leadership is, our spirit is. And we might have all of these theories as to why. Well, I'm feeling this because my job sucks. Well, I'm feeling this because my spouse is a wet blanket. Well, I'm feeling this because I don't live where I want to live. But the reality is, what really is going on is we're refusing to obey somewhere so our tongue is tied. It's like the other weekend, I had my youngest, uh, Reese, the, the five-year-old. Nicole and the other two went up to camp. They were volunteering in the dish room at camp for the weekend. And so it was me and Reese for the weekend. It was like a date weekend. And Reese is a carbon copy of her mom. So like lots of energy, just like completely out there. But she's got my fight in her, so to speak, which is a very dangerous combo. And so, so the others leave 
and she'd been looking forward to this weekend for so long. In fact, so much so that her and I, we sat down at the dinner table and we, we, we wrote down a list of everything that we were gonna do, all of our plans. We're gonna get bubble tea and we're gonna paint pottery and we're gonna watch a movie in bed. And like, she's all excited, has this list, like all excited to accomplish all of these things. It's a very rough start to the weekend though. The morning that everybody left, Reese needed to clean up a mess in, that she had made in our office. And she didn't want to do it. You know, she kept putting it off and she wanted to argue about it. And she's just mopey, like all morning, just mopey. The office isn't clean. And I told her, I was like, I'm not going to paint any pottery. I'm not going to go get bubble tea until you clean that up. And so she's moping around. It's like for an hour, just like moping around, wasting time, complaining. Just, she just wants to do what she wants to do. And at one point, she realizes we're not going anywhere until it's clean. And so she goes in, she kind of like half cleans it, throws things into the closet, shuts the door and says, fine, let's go. I was like, oh, I can tell it's not clean just based on your attitude right now. You're trying to hide it. I can tell just based on your face. And so finally I just put my foot down. I was like, all right, get in there. We're not gonna discuss anymore. Get in there, clean it up. We're not talking about it. 10 minutes later, she comes out. The mess is clean, looks great. And it was like her spirit was just completely untied. She walked out of the office all happy, excited for the day, you know, new person. That act of obedience brought her freedom. How many of us are living like a five-year-old before cleaning the office? Just moping around, wanting to argue about every little thing, miserable, marriage is a mess. You don't want to do what you know you need to do. Or there's sin in your life that created a mess and so you just kind of like half put things back and you just try to shut the door and not address it and keep it hidden. Or the boss that God gave you to submit to, you do more cutting them than blessing them and submitting. Like you're just tied up. Maybe it's just not surrendering, surrendering to God. You've been coming to church for so long, but you haven't said like, all right, God, I'm in, let's do this. So you're just that one act of obedience. For some of us, it's baptism. You claim to be a Christian, but you haven't done the very first thing that Jesus has told you to do. And so it's that, like that one act of obedience away from real freedom that God wants you to live in. It might be serving. It might be a conversation that you know you need to have. It might be breaking up from, with, with somebody. It might be humbling yourself and submitting. Like there is something that you're bucking and it has you tied up. Where are you one act of obedience away from experiencing true freedom and life? To be candid with you, this is, this is a very difficult sermon for me to preach and to organize. Like following the life of John, again, as I said, is like just, it's sporadic and it's random and, it, and it's wild. Like our Seven Deadly Sins series, very specific and honed in. This is just like not at all. And so my struggle is like, okay, what do we do with all this? So it's like quietly waiting. Okay, we get that. And life begins before birth. Like, okay, some of us like that, some of us don't. And then we have obedience and freedom. It's like, this is so random. What do we do with this? Maybe it's not so random. You boil all of this down to, are you actually surrendered to God? That's where this all boils down to. Like, are you truly, fully, passionately submitted and surrendered to what God has said and where God is leading you? When we are, when we are passionately surrendered to God, we can quietly wait. The measure of our surrender is tested when we have to wait. I'm not gonna try to control everything. I know you're God. And I'm surrendered to you. So I'll wait for your marching orders. Or when it comes to politically incorrect, sensitive topics like the sanctity of life, have we surrendered those opinions and those views to what God has clearly said in Scripture? 
That area that you're refusing to obey, it reveals a lack of surrender there. This all boils down to surrender. The life God has called you to, it's not a life of mediocrity that barely looks different than your neighbors. You know, oh, I'm just trying to like do whatever my neighbors are doing, but you know, try to throw God here and there and get to church on the weekends. Life's just kind of in cruise control spiritually as long as I'm in church on the weekends. No, Christ surrendered all that we might surrender all. The cross beckons us to live this life of full-fledged surrender at every turn. But if you're anything like me, we can hold on to things. Hold on to these habits. Hold on to these views. Hold on to these toxic relationships, these attitudes, these unsubmitted hearts, this pride. And until we let go, we're doomed to live this frustrated life of mediocrity, spinning our wheels. Many are living those stories. Just like my daughter, before she picks up the office, just living mopey and wanting to argue about everything. But God calls you to so much more. And that so much more is this road of surrender. The way I think of it is, in Africa, monkeys can be pretty annoying. What, what a transition, I know. Monkeys can be very annoying. In fact, when I was there, I stayed in a, one night in a hotel that would trap monkeys when they would come onto their property because at night, the monkeys, this is great, the monkeys would come into the parking lot and jump on all the cars and get all the car alarms going off, which is just hilarious to me. So they would trap the monkeys so that it wouldn't happen. And the traps are fascinating. If you ever want to trap a monkey, here's how you do it. <laughs> you take a coconut and you chain the coconut to a tree and you hollow out the coconut with this tiny little borehole and then you fill it with nuts. The monkeys will come along, they'll reach into the coconut for the nuts, they'll grab a bunch and they won't be able to get their hand out. They'll be in there for hours. All they have to do is let go of the nuts, surrender the nuts, but they won't. And so they'll just be there like for hours yanking on this thing and then they're stuck and then somebody comes with a hood over their head and takes them out into the country and, and lets them go. But how many of us are like those monkeys? Right? It's true, isn't it? We're just like, we're holding on to something. You're one act of surrender away from what you crave. But there you are with your hand in the coconut, holding on to that relationship, holding on to that attitude, holding on to that apology, holding on to that pride, holding on to that viewpoint that you know is wrong. And you're stuck and you've been stuck. And so you're miserable. And of course you're miserable because you're stuck in a coconut. <laughs> this is why God says, what's it gonna be? What's it gonna be? Me or that? Are you gonna keep trying to control everything? Holding on to things? Or are you gonna take my invitation and live this life of surrender? The Holy Spirit is telling us, let it go. Let it go. A life of surrender is beautiful. A life of surrender ends up being this wild life, but it is a beautiful life, and it is your daily calling. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.